one of the things I'll remember particular. Um, there were a few things that was, um, yeah, that must have been back, yeah, 82 that would have been. And um, I thought I got to the Vatican. That was as far south as I got was the Vatican in Rome. <laughs> it's <was> pretty far. <laughs> and I left my car outside with all my worldly possessions right outside oh, the Vatican. No. And I thought, it'll be okay here, you know. And sure enough, I, I was out for two hours or so and I came back and my car was broken into and they'd taken everything. Well, hello. We're back. Last on the Breaks podcast is, well, technically still lockdown last on the Breaks podcast because we're in the MotoGP bubble. It's just we're not coming to you anymore from Skype for this episode, at least. We're in the media centre in the Circuito de Jerez Angel Nieto. And we've got some very special guests, not just by Skype. I'm actually sitting alongside my co-host, Fran Wild, socially distanced with Mars. <laughs> Fran, I've not seen you, obviously, since in about 16 weeks, clearly. <laughs> but uh, how are you doing? You all right? Yeah, not doing too badly. Thank you very much. It is strange to be here. We were just saying beforehand, I think we're going to find it quite weird to relax now we're being filmed from so many angles. Yeah. Apologies if we don't manage it. So, yeah, this week we have a very esteemed guest on the show uh, sitting with us here in Jerez, which is the managing director of Yamaha Motor Racing, Lynn Jarvis the man with the clearest gaze at the timing screens that we've ever seen, <laughs> you know, from the garage during a race weekend. But obviously there's a much more to the man behind the team and behind that role in the paddock as well. Uh, and of course, there's a lot more to the job than simply turning up, I imagine, giving people instructions and then sitting back. It's a very hands-on, complex wish. situation. <laughs> exactly. So running, obviously, one of the best sports teams in the world, not even just in MotoGP, with such incredible success over the past couple of decades. I think hopefully... We'll, we'll get uh, to the bottom of it, Lynn. But I'll yeah. tell you what, one thing I do want to ask you, something to clear up, because coming into working in MotoGP a few years ago, I didn't know that you're a Brit because your accent's quite international. But mm. then looking at your background, all the places you live, can you please clear it up for the viewers at home? You are a Brit, but your accents come from all over now, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, my accent is a mess, basically, <laughs> and it's kind of neutral. Um, I mean, I was born in London, so you can't get much British than that, I guess, uh, or at least much more English than that. Um, but I left the UK probably in 1983. Wow. So since 1983, I've been uh, working and living overseas. Um, so I worked in uh, the Netherlands for 20, 20 odd years. I don't remember exactly 20, 22 years. And now I've been in Italy for the last, uh, since 2005. So 15 years in Italy and 22 or so in the Netherlands. So in that process, um, I've lost uh, not only any accent that I had, a uh, British accent, um, but I've lost a lot of vocabulary because when, you, uh, <laughs> you know, when you're living abroad and working with foreigners all the time, in order to communicate, anyway, if you want to do it kind of easily for yourself, you have to do it a little bit more simple and you, and you have to make sure you don't have a weird accent that confuses people. So pro a lot of people, when they hear me for the first time, they think maybe I'm South African. Yeah, we saw one on Australia. Reddit as well, wondering if you were from somewhere, maybe South Africa or Australian tinged. Zimbabwe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've got a little bit of a 
twang there because it's just a super flat accent, but um, that's all. It's I funny you like... mention that, and it, they, they get speaking simply. Well, you and I know that very well, don't yeah. we? Living in, in Barcelona and Spain. Yeah. It's especially, yeah, when you, like, I don't speak much Italian. I'm trying to learn now, but as soon as it's with the Italians, you really go into that mood of, okay, clear, simple words. Because yeah. all you need to do is make yourself understood. You're not going to win some sort of. Nobel Prize for Literature <laughs> if you're trying exactly. to do that. In fact, it's, uh, you know, the, the biggest problem I have with my accent is, is when I do return back to where my family are, which is living in Kent, because they think I'm like a, some sort of alien. Because, you know, <laughs> please start speaking to us normally, you know, and please use the accent, because they got quite a Kentish accent, and I have zero, you know. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, so there we go. For the guys on Reddit who'd asked that yeah. we uh, saw on uh, Google the other day, British, yeah. although now international man of mystery. Yeah. So yeah. if we go back then to talk about you, obviously, like we said, you're such a key figure for Yamaha and especially the project within this paddock and in Europe as well, the European mm. side of it. Mm. How did you end up where you are now? Well, it's a long story. I would say a long story always in blue um, because I've been with Yamaha for a long time and um, my real uh, I worked for Yamaha in the UK before I left to go to Europe um, and I left uh, the UK specifically because I wanted to to work internationally you know I had that drive and uh, that desire to do that so I went in 83 to Amsterdam and I got a job with uh, Yamaha Europe so I over many years I did many different roles there and I started off with bicycles believe it or not yeah. um, which is a bit strange for Yamaha but Back in the day, we had bicycles. And, Did um, they? I didn't know that. Yeah, we had, a, um, what do you call them, um, BMX bikes. Yeah, yeah. And they were ah, manufactured okay, cool. in France. Brilliant. And so they kind of gave me that project to, to start with. And then that developed to being an area manager. So I was kind of an area manager for regular products and motorcycle sales in uh, Scandinavia. So my countries were Norway, Finland, uh, the Netherlands, and uh, Denmark. So area manager, then I was handling competition motorcycle sales. And then eventually after doing lots of sales and marketing uh, functions, I, I got uh, responsibility for communications. Right. So I was in charge of uh, marketing communications for all two-wheel products and for corporate communication. And also then that included racing. So, you know, not long after I moved, I got involved. I was working in the racing division and... And so I got responsible, I was made responsible probably in the mid-80s for motocross, for the World Motocross Championship. And after that I covered World Motocross, then I covered World Superbike, then I covered also Paris-Dakar. So many, many disciplines. And, and I was kind of touching on GP, but GP was handled by Japan and I was working for Yamaha Europe. Um, so I was involved in the times of Kenny Roberts and Wayne Rainey. I remember I used to go there as the, the timid guest that would try to get a pass and try to get in, you know. Really? And then um, there came a moment really um, back in 98, it was, when Yamaha decided they wanted to do something more important and come back to winning ways. And so they started a factory team. Wayne Rainey retired because he was managing a team. Um, and then there was the Red Bull team and they asked me if I was interested to head up a new project and start a new factory team. Wow. So I said, why not? And but, here I am. Well, <laughs> here, in, here in the communications part, well, that makes total sense why I've always found that your interviews have been some of the most considered. There's not one word 
which you don't consider before it comes out of your mouth. So that's where that background comes from then, I guess. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, in my world, uh, you need to be pretty precise yeah, yeah. with what you say because many things can be used and held against you. So you yeah. need to be quite uh, considerate. Just go for that neutral path as yeah, much yeah. as possible. Yeah. <laughs> like when we sat in the media centre, normally full of journalists, of course, not here due to the medical protocol, all those guys there are looking to pick apart every single word mm. you say and yeah. everything like that. Sure. <laughs> Some of the just, uh, I'm just wondering then, listening to you about moving, that you really wanted to move abroad from the very beginning then. Because, yeah. of course, working for Dawn and myself and Fran, we, we live in Spain and everything like that. How much of a big decision did you find that in your life? Because it's all obviously a huge decision to leave everything behind to go work abroad but I found in my personal case everything happened so fast I didn't really get an opportunity to really think that over before and just get on with it and then you kind of pro you don't have time to process it ever almost yeah was that how was that in your case a little different I guess um you know I had I'd been working already for six years I guess in the UK and traveled extensively in the UK um and I it was in the years of the Thatcher years and that was as much motivation as I needed so (laughs) honestly I wanted yeah honestly it's like that so I got uh, angry at uh, the way or frustrated at the the attitude and uh, the way that the country was being governed so I wanted to branch out and go overseas and um, and you know i then uh, actually i i did two attempts the first one failed miserably right um, and i'll always remember because i quit my job i had a good job in the uk and i just said anyway it's time it's time for me to go i've done it i want to i want to get another job somewhere else so i bought a car with the steering wheel on the wrong what on the wrong side yeah <laughs> it was a pretty scary car if i think back of it now it's kind of a little embarrassing maybe but anyway i put my worldly possessions inside the car which was not a lot because they all fitted in the back seat <laughs> I put my bicycle on the top and I, I headed off through Europe and the idea was to firstly travel a little bit by myself and then uh, try to find some sort of employment, any sort of employment in order to pick up on languages and to try to live overseas. And and one of the one of the things I'll remember particular, um, there were a few things that was, um, yeah, that must have been back, yeah, 82 that would have been. Wow. And... Um, I thought I got to the Vatican. That was as far south as I got was the Vatican in Rome. It's pretty far. And I left my car outside with all my worldly possessions right outside the Vatican. And I thought, it'll be okay here, you know. And sure enough, I I was out for two hours or so, and I came back and my car was broken into and they'd taken everything. So that was probably kind of the the shocking low point. You you parked in a place that you kind of thought you might be protected from up there, (laughs) and it wasn't to be. And uh, anyway, I continued, and I looked for jobs in Italy. I looked for jobs in France. um, Went through the motions, didn't work out, and I went back to the UK. And um, then I kind of picked up from there, and there's still the desire to go was still there. And I said, you know what? When I left the Yamaha UK, um, they called me from Amsterdam and they said, anyway, we're sorry to see you go. If you ever think of coming back, give us a call. So I did. I gave them a call. They invited me for an interview and I got the job. And that was uh, that was the opportunity that I needed. And um, But, you know, if you hadn't made the first step, which failed, then I'd still probably be working in the UK doing what I... Doing something there, but I, I branched out and finally I got lucky and uh, got the job. I feel slightly more normal now because that's basically what I did. Oh, yeah. Put all my stuff in the car. Yeah. Moved to Barcelona via Mazzano. 
because yeah. I went to the race on the way. Uh, and yeah, just done with this. Bye, guys. I'm going to try and find something. Luckily, I didn't get robbed in the Vatican. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's cool. Oh, that's you, had a, you had a brush in, though. It was I did, yes. Thing, didn't I you? did mm. in, uh, in Barcelona, sadly. Yeah, but yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, that wasn't at the same time, though. So it's no. not technically part of the stressful movie. Can't imagine that. <laughs> that's a short story, though, actually. I didn't know about you. Of oh, all yeah. the places to get robbed as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like it's the one word. place I thought I might be under supervision, <laughs> but apparently not. So that's life. Well, so, okay, well, that's pretty cool then. But what about your passion for bikes? Because it's all right saying, well, I've been with Yamaha forever, but especially in the UK, yeah, it's something not countercultural, but it's certainly something a little bit more out of the ordinary for a lot of people to be interested in motorcycles and motorcycle racing. Maybe now, maybe now it's like that, but back back when I was young, I think it was a little bit more normal and a little bit more mainstream okay, or something, even from the, a young the Barry age. Sheen effect and yeah, that kind you know, of Barry Sheen, of course, was a big hero at that time, and uh, I even had some contact with him when i was working with yamaha uk i wasn't responsible at all i was just a rookie just a junior but barry was a yamaha rider for the akai yamaha team at that time but even in the uk i was also running the motocross program and stuff like that and but my real roots um came from my father and um, my father was involved in trials and so i started riding a trials bike when i was 15 and started doing competition and then when I was 18, I got this job in Yamaha UK, which was literally a job opening parks packages at the time. Really? You know, I was involved in the warranty claims department. You start from the and, very, uh, very you're bottom. You're an amazing fairy tale um, example from literally just opening packages. Yeah. to the king of the whole project on this side of the world oh, it's, no, it's no, quite no, a trajectory that. that is yeah anyway if you if you do what you love doing and it's something you're passionate about motivated and you take the opportunities that come your way then you can go quite far i think in life yeah yeah that's completely mm. right and th so the trials thing i mean as slow as you can get on a bike basically the slower the I'm slower slow the better as well trust yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that, you, you I, i've seen all these photos from you over the years all these different riding experiences yeah. you've been to the ranch and things like that sure. like so you know when what did how do those trial skills help you out with you know learning all these other disciplines too because i guess you wouldn't you wouldn't bother going around rossi's ranch on a flat track bike if you didn't think you were capable or is that how, how you have been over the last couple of years yeah. i don't know what's weird is actually i ride more today than i did when i was young really? i think and um so i have in the garage at home a few bikes i have a trials bike i have uh, two enduro bikes motocross bike uh track bike so um whenever i find the opportunity and luckily working in this world the opportunities do arise if you're there and you take them so um yeah i like to ride you know i'm not particularly um, good or not particularly fast but I'm more or less capable whatever I do you know like this I'm, I'm average <laughs> kind of just about I feel like there's that sweet spot where you're capable enough to enjoy it fully and you're not out there trying to impress anyone yeah, or set exactly. any records so but I'm you're able to I'm not trying to impress anybody <laughs> except myself and um, and so even now I ride enduro motocross trials and uh, on the Mugello Mizano and yeah. Silverstone wherever I can so what is your coolest riding experience you've had then because you've I guess you've ridden with all the riders that you've you've had under your employment that's weird yeah. to say isn't it but my coolest riding experience would have been um, maybe it would have been even in the 90s i guess and um when i was responsible for 
the promotion and marketing of Yamaha products for European wise, we organized something called the Spirit of Adventure. And the Spirit of Adventure, we would take uh, 70 customers, real customers of these big Super Tenere, it was called, and we would take 70 guys from many different countries. We take them and their bike to some exotic location and we would organize a big adventure raid tour. Wow. Um, and I was fortunate to be responsible for that whole project. So I, I rode through, through the Australian outback with uh, 69 other crazy Europeans. Um, and I rode in Mexico and I rode in Egypt and I rode in other places. And, and that's fabulous, you know, being out there Amazing. in the wild open, discovering new things, being with like-minded people and uh, awesome, absolutely back, awesome. Back when marketing budgets were a bit more extensive yeah, than they are exactly. these days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a different time and yeah. um, they were fabulous experiences, yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. That sounds pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. So like we said then, you get the call from Yamaha Amsterdam or rather you call them, get the yep. job. Then of course you moved to Italy in 2005, yeah, right? Correct, yeah. Um, so round about the beginning of the Valentino era as well, just after then. Yeah. What's that change like, having lived so long in the Netherlands and then going to Italy, moving all the base of operations there? I guess that's kind of the inception of what you consider to be the project now. Very much so. Now, we started, um, you know, this new chapter, this current chapter, I can say, of my life started in 99 when we began the factory team because I stayed in the Netherlands uh, and we had a workshop still in the Netherlands and we began the company and um, very, very small. We were two or three people plus <laughs> the team, you know, contracted <laughs> staff. But um, then from 99 until 2003, we were moderately successful. We started as the Marlboro Yamaha team with Max Biaggi and Carlos Checa. We achieved second place in the World Championship, third place, but we didn't take the win, you know. And um, then in 2003, we were in our lowest point where we didn't win a single race. And that's when the management of Yamaha Japan basically stepped in and said, either we step up or we should get out, you know. And so we took this big sort of leap of faith and we were able, fortunately, we were able to take Valentino Rossi on board as a rider. And that was a game changer. And um, so that game changer led to many things. And uh, one of the things it led to was uh, step by step, we've been moving our operations out of the Netherlands into Italy because Italy is the the sec the first or second center of racing you know because many many yeah. suppliers are there manpower is there uh, passion is there uh, manufacturers are there so it was logic to be based much more in southern europe than it was to be based in the netherlands so we've done many things but then of course rossi's success in 2004 when he joined us um, and won the championship was really a, a spur and a motivation. You know what? MotoGP is really important. We need to be totally focused. And so we changed the company and we decided we'll close Yamaha Racing in the Netherlands and we'll start a new Yamaha Racing in Italy, totally focused to MotoGP. And um, so I made the move together with, um, together with my family. And it was, should we say, another chapter, mm -hmm. another sub-chapter. And... Um, Honestly, it's been great. It's been uh, it's been really good. I, I really really like to live in Italy, and as a place to base a MotoGP team, it's uh, perfect. 
That's really cool. I know there's something I wanted to pick up from there is about how you guys decided then at that time, MotoGP is such a big deal. It's really big because that when we had Chad Reed on, yeah. he was saying how that 2003 to 2006-7 era was the time when he felt the motorsport, motorcycle racing was like really important in global culture. Yeah. Would you say that same sort of thing? And what do, do you find there was sort of any trigger in that? Was was Rossi's first years and that was that part of trigger? What what's your take? I mean, I, I would say for us there were two different stages in that. The first really important stage was the switch to four strokes because uh, when we were racing uh, in 99 to maybe 2000, maybe 2001, I don't remember so well, but it was two-stroke. And that was great. Racing was great. It was exciting, but no relevance to the business. Hmm. By that time, the business had already switched to four-strokes. So it's like we had this racing department, but nobody really knew what they did or why they did it. And anyway, let's continue doing. But it was a bit isolated. And when we made the shift to four-stroke in uh, 2000 and whatever, two or so, or 2001, it made the technology relevant for the company again. So this all automatically meant that our investments in the sport were giving more returns to the products yeah. that we were selling and so forth. That's the first thing. Um, but then I would say the second thing at that stage for us, talking about Yamaha, was when we had Valentino join us and he was able to win that championship in the first year, we got that confidence came back and that we can do factor and at Valentino Rossi back in that time was really at the height of his popularity as he, I mean he's still popular now but then he was winning everything so to be engaged and to be involved um, the motorcycle business was uh, quite strong um, and it became a global sport also due to Dorna because the Dorna did a great job over the last 20, 25 years to develop the sport and to internationalize it. We've not asked him so, to say that, don't worry. No, yeah, they didn't yeah. ask him to say that, but it's, it's true, you know, it's because... Just passing the check on the hill. Yeah, <laughs> if you compare, if you go back to the 90s and you compare yeah. to now, you know, the reality is that the, it is truly a major global sport and yeah. it has relevance. You know, our biggest number of fans are in Indonesia. Hmm. They're not in Italy or in Spain. Yeah. They're in Indonesia. <laughs> they're in Thailand. They're in Philippines and so forth. And this is a fact. And so it is now the MotoGP world is so relevant to our business and so important for our company. Um, and that means we've been able to keep the investment going. That means the top management are on board. <coughs> so, you know, it's that whole everything kind of working together. And for us, becoming successful again was so important. Okay. Well, that's interesting because it is, I think a lot of people tend to see it almost as purely a marketing exercise. Like you want the brand to win and full stop. But there is also that other side of the development and that you do get that return there as well in yeah. the stuff that you kind of create here and you can Very show that your so. products are so world leading. I mean, it is really important. And if you look now at, um, you see, you know, the products that our guys go out and they're, they're training on most of the time because you can't train on a MotoGP bike because it's not allowed. So what do they do? They, they train on the R1M, hmm. on the R1. And the R1 is a very similar technology to what we're using here in terms of the layout of the engine is almost the same. The chassis development is benefiting from that. The electronics are developing from that. Um, and also, you know, we always, this will make you smile, but it's a fact. The most efficient um, engine that Yamaha have in terms of horsepower for fuel is the, is the uh, M1. 
because that's yeah. the bike that uses in the most efficient way uh, performance and uh, versus fuel. And so there are many things, some are direct and some are less direct, but that investment is what convinces our management to keep investing. Oh, that's, no, and that's good news for the future of the mm. sport, obviously, and that you're long into the future. Something mm. which uh, I wanted to ask you from them, because we have got some set questions of things which we've been reading about you and we're, we're very curious to know. Mm. Um, you mentioned in an interview at one point how you deal with super experts every day. Mm. You know, you, you, the, everyone, every single individual in your company is one of the best in the world at what they could possibly do. Mm. Um, how often, this is my own personal curiosity, how often after all your years of being at the top, does someone do something in your company, whether it be in the communication department, marketing, or even to some of the engineers, and you go, bloody hell, how do you do that? Wow, every day's a school day, that sort of feeling. Is, does that still happen? Or have you, have you found at this point that you've basically seen it all and it's it's very uniform these days no i don't i don't think it's very uniform especially the way that technology's moved on from now i mean uh, even the, this sort of thing that we're doing now is something yeah. that we wouldn't have done a few years ago um even this covid story has brought us accelerated our process of making you know um uh, whether it be zoom or skype or teams or uh, i don't <laughs> yeah. know how many different systems there are but this is new technologies and new ways of communication yeah. it's become much more fragmented than when i was responsible for communications for instance so this is a field that's always constantly advancing technology in the bike is always constantly advancing every time i see it in the garage of course i'm used to seeing the bikes but if you just sit down there and you just take a good look at the bike it is amazing <laughs> the technology of yeah. those bikes it's phenomenal and every year they improve every week and weekend they're trying to improve you know we've got engineers in italy and obviously a lot more in japan and if you see and hear the things for me it's rocket science <laughs> i can't understand it but you know it's constantly progressing constantly moving and my job is not to disturb what anybody's doing that's why the the next generation is there to keep moving on my job is to try to keep the ship pointing in the right direction and make sure that on the key strategic decisions we're in the right uh, in the right way so for you then it's definitely not the micromanaging it's i'm the captain of the ship make sure everyone's getting a sailing where we need to be but trusting their ability and that's what I would like to think that people think, but I'm sure if you ask some of my staff, they'll, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, he's a, he's a bit of a pain sometimes because, you know, he'll pick me up on this or he'll pick me up on that. But I try my best to let them uh, do what they do best. And honestly, most of the time, they are far more expert than I am in uh, whatever they're doing. So, no, I, I think... Uh, so far, it's working. So anyway, <laughs> I wonder. Um, I mean, we're we're ever more fascinated to hear, to hear from the the different people that actually listen to this podcast. I'm sure some people do listen in, especially when we speak to guys like you about some business know how. But so how how do you avoid micromanaging? Do you do you do you recognise when you do go into that stage and do you pull yourself out of it? And think, don't need to tell that person how to do that. Or do, what, I, what's I your really scenario? struggle with this when I'm showing <laughs> anyone what to do with anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say I struggle with it as well, honestly. Um, you know, I know I can be a real pain. Um, but I guess probably I'm, in general, I'm too busy. So I'm too busy to get over-engaged or over-involved right. in too many things. Because I actually, I mean, this is kind of interesting and not interesting but um i had a major burnout so oh, yeah? um i had a real a real burnout a bad one 
and I remained um, affected for seven years by that. Crikey. And wow, that was okay. a burnout that was basically caused by spinning too many plates. So I got uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, and that was back in 90... That would have been back in 97, 98. Wow. And I didn't get rid of it until 2004 or five. Probably when you needed then the most energy to deal with what was happening at the scene, right? Or something like yeah, that? Yeah, actually, yes. Um, and so, I mean, I know how I got it because, you know, I was one of these crazy guys that I, I was responsible for motorcycle communication, corporate communication, racing, this, that, every project. So I was running around in the office all the time, working from early in the morning to late at night, spinning plates. But I was also younger then, so I was into <laughs> sport. So even on a Sunday, I would be working in the office, but in order to do my training, I would run from my house, hmm. 10 kilometers to the office, work all day Sunday, and then I would run back again. So I got in my 20K or whatever. And, wow. was, and finally, my, I always remember my wife told me, he said, anyway, you, you, if you keep going like this, you're gonna, you, you know, you, you can't manage this, you're gonna get sick. And I, no, 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 it's okay, I can't <laughs> But I crashed big time, wow. I mean, really big time. And I ended up, as I said, with this uh, CFS, as it was called. Um, and I'm very lucky because I was one of the very few that get cured of it. Hmm. Um, but it took me seven years. And so since then, I am aware of where my limit is. And so there's certain things when I say, you know what, it's okay. I, I've done my maximum, okay. basta. Because it's very easy in this world. It's a non-stop world we're very living in. Easy. And it's very easy to make that mistake. And so I'm always warning people, take a rest or, you know, don't do too much or, you know, good, do your max. But then just pay attention because I made the mistake myself. Okay, that's very interesting. I mm. feel like that explains an awful lot mm. of your later success after that as well. Because mm. I feel like so many people in the world end up maybe they don't always reach that point mm. but they spend so much of their life almost reaching that point and never get that realization or that wake-up call yeah so i think i think it's interesting that your the, the biggest successes that you're known for have come after you've scaled back from being this like well, i guess the modern word is hustle mm. you know back then you'd be, you'd be like i'm the king of hustle this yeah. and that mm. but actually your biggest success come back when after you've been through that burnout and scaled it back and actually learning to know when to call it quits that's really interesting yeah maybe because um i mean when i took on board this job um the thing that i found it interesting was focus it gave me a chance to focus so instead of running around spinning mm. seven or eight plates one. i'd have a big one <laughs> it would be a bit a little bit delicate but it was one project and i could see the results so whatever i did on that project good or bad you could see your results straight away. Mm -hmm. And that gives more sort of like um, direct feedback, uh, more satisfaction as well. But, but that said, I went through also, I can say in nine, in 2002 and three major stress as well, you know. Um, yeah, I was fortunate, I think, and I, I always joking with Max himself about this, but <laughs> I worked with Max Biaggi for four years. And after working with Max for four years, my conclusion was, well, if you can survive that, you can survive anything. <laughs> so I, you, you know, know that's a quote we just have to make clickbait from. It's a baptism of fire, you know. And, and now I have a good relationship with Max, and now he's a family man, you know. He's a father, he has his kids and everything. So it's different now, but... Um, <laughs> 
there's a lot of stress goes into this job as well honestly and so you have to you have to stay calm that's very interesting so okay we'll move more on to the racing then we've just had that insight on max we won't push too far into the details of what exactly (laughs) he put you through i can imagine the number one thing that a lot of fans will want to ask you about is the obvious rossi lorenzo We don't want to know, oh, what dirt can you tell us on that? Now it's so much later. But more, what is that experience like for you being in control of that project when you have the brilliance of knowing you have possibly the two best or two of the best on the grid and you also have to balance them together at the same time? How do you deal with that, with the personalities and how hard it is when you're fighting yourselves for the same goal? with delicacy diplomacy and difficulty is probably <laughs> three the, the three d's i can say um it's the most i would say probably it's been the most rewarding time because uh you know when they were together we won uh three triple crowns i think and we won four championships with Vale, then three with uh, Jorge, of which part of that time they were together so i think we had four championships when they were together in the team so it gave a lot of uh, positivity and feedback and um but you know it was quite tough because anyway any top athlete are very much focused on their own goals and their own objectives and the, the last thing in their concern is what their teammate whether he will achieve or not achieve you know so <laughs> you have to try to um take care of each one as an individual make sure that you're always fair in the treatment you give that doesn't necessarily mean always equal on everything we're equal in our philosophy towards our riders but you know if this one wants that and the other one wants that then you have to make sure that you split yourself but you know there are some moments um in that time when uh you know there's big egos in this sport as well and um you have to manage the rider the rider's ego the entourage their expectation their demand sometimes we couldn't deliver and fulfill it's it's quite difficult but if you ask me i would always take two top riders instead of an a and a b you know it's more we can already see that in next year yeah yeah, (laughs) yeah. i think next year's team is uh, should be a good team this year's team is good but next year's um, is going to be good we're going to have two young guns in there that are both top level so our desire is to try to come back into that sort of same winning era that's what we try to do back in those years did you ever have when it when it first started 2008 or so although i know obviously you would would have known what was coming before then back in 2007 Mm. was there a point where you thought how did did anyone teach you how to deal with those two mass vegas because like we mentioned in the intro you're not just a team manager of a a great motorcycle racing team Mm. and manufacturer it's a sporting brand Mm. you know it's really high place and those two guys they are sporting legends, not just motor gp legends of such did did you feel that ready prepared to deal with that kind of thing was there any point where you thought i am not cut out for this <laughs> you know what was your reaction there yeah no it's something you grow into and uh, of course the uh, being involved in various disciplines of motoring sport over the year i came across a lot of characters and i've had a lot of difficult jobs to do you know hiring is always the easiest firing is always the most difficult 
Um, I've hired a lot of interesting and great riders. I've also fired a lot of interesting and great riders. So that whole process, you know, if you ask me what prepared me for that period, I would say all the 25 years leading up to it, <laughs> dealing with amateur riders and junior riders and then uh, this type of rider yeah. and, you know, multinational people. And you'll, you'll still always be surprised, you know, there's always a surprise around the corner, but it's something you kind of grow into. And, and these days, I have to say, um, while I'm still surprised uh, frequently, um, at the same time, I'm accustomed to it. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm used to it. I'm, I'm waiting for something <laughs> unexpected to happen and I don't panic. And I think that if I, you know, I told you I had back in, in, in probably in the, the early 2000s, I, I had a lot of stress at that time. And that's because I took everything so personally and I, and, and, and I, and I, and then it was more new to me. And so now having years of experience um, and work with so many interesting riders and top riders don't panic don't panic you deal with it understand it try to find the best solution you sometimes can't find the best solution but it's very very important to take your time and think well and uh, and try not to get too stressed that's interesting. Mm. So, Zen's have been a quite a long, uh, a key topic on I these podcasts, isn't it? Really? I've had a fairly stressful like hour and a half before this, and yeah. I can genuinely feel myself just going, "No, we're, good, we're okay." We've <laughs> <laughs> been talking with a few um, people, isn't it? It's been the case, right? Yeah, it's it's a really uh, seems to be very much top advice from some of the most successful in this paddock. So yeah. I would uh, definitely say it's worth listening to. <laughs> yeah. So talking about the riders that you've had already, obviously now you have. Well, first you had back again Valentino and Jorge, mm. then Maverick joined the team, uh, and then next year we're getting the Fabio Maverick yep. super lineup of the young guns, like you said. Mm. What do you look for in those riders? Obviously, Fabio especially is a really interesting case yeah. from extreme hype to some struggles and then to the incredible job that he's done so far in the mm. Premier class. Mm. What interests you about a rider? How involved are you in that process? Is it people coming to you with it, or is it you picking them out and saying, "No, I want this guy on my bike"? Yeah, yeah. It's not. You know, I'm not a genius at picking out young riders. You know, I mean, I'm not somebody that can spot a kid at 13 and coming through. You know, I have to say there. If you if you talk about some people that are particularly good at that, maybe Alberto Puch is a good example of somebody that is technically sharp because he was an ex-rider and he's brought up some young riders successful ones and so forth that's not my that's not my forte that's not my skill um no what i look for we tend to look at the kind of the stage just before moto gp so we're talking about moto 2 level and then in the early stage of moto gp um you know obviously talented riders fast riders um, motivated riders, passionate riders. I mean, there are many, but the number that become to world champion is very, very few. And, you know, Jorge was one of the good ones in that sense because, you know, he was, when he was in that 250 class, as it was back in the day, then um, we signed him early because we could see it. You know, he had that, he had that burning passion, desire to win. And, um, and that's a lot of riders are very talented, a lot are very, very good. But 
few have that you know plus alpha that extra touch and so really you look for that i think that's what you're really looking for and and how do you quantify it how do you identify it is difficult to say but you can feel it you can sense it and i think in uh, you know the case of maverick i think he's got a great potential um if he can keep himself consistent and positive you know he's sometimes erratic but very very skilled and uh, you need to keep him in his in his zone and if you can keep him in him in his sweet spot he's got the capacity to win a world championship uh, for sure maybe you know more than one as well and in the case of fabio as you said he's had a um an interesting career up until now incredible success early on then he'd been through some rough times and then he came into MotoGP by surprise it surprised us as well we supported the choice of the team it was their decision to bring him in but we said yeah why not you know uh, nothing to lose let's give him a ride i mean he he showed his talent back in the day i remember meeting him uh, meeting his earlier manager when he was probably 15 or 16 you know <laughs> so we were busy with that but he came in last year and and you could see that he it all clicked yeah. and you need you know you need many many things to be aligned um in order to win the world championship and and mark is in that situation now you know he's in his sweet spot you know he's perhaps the only guy that can really ride the honda and extract the best performance out of it he's incredibly fit and talented he's incredibly motivated um and he's got he, all of his stars aligned for this period for him but everything comes to an end and our mission is to uh, is to, to accelerate the, the next change one, <laughs> the next ones to come into that zone and start to win again and uh, I, I believe that our two guys that we've taken on board um, they have that potential so can I ask you then in coming into the world of 2020 and obviously out of the lockdown and COVID situation mm. we just had we spoke a bit at the beginning how communications marketing it's just showing the world how important it still mm. is and it's even more important now than maybe ever before mm. does the marketability of a rider not just their their result sheet but how well you can place them in in social media video specific content this and that and your broader marketing campaigns does that ever come into it for a factory boss or is that more something which you would leave to independent team riders is that something you're thinking about going forward uh, i would say honestly speaking is it important to us yes is it decisive in making a decision no so for us it's all about performance and it's all about speed and it's all about whether they can achieve the goal then in that process if they are also good at social media it's better if they are less good at social media then we'll try our best to educate them you know we have uh we have five people in our marketing communication team so we take personal care of them if we see they have weak spots we'll try to improve them um luckily many of these young kids they've grown up with social media now and they're again they're, they're certainly more expert than i am um and a lot of them are pretty advanced in it you know and and they they express their characters through their social media as well and um and i think that's important uh and i think that's one of the beauties of motorcycling is um, maybe in some other worlds, uh, you know, in Formula One was a little bit like that some years ago. It's getting better, but people are a little bit too much cloned, you know, yeah, um, yeah. and not showing their individual characters. And I think that's one of the beauties of MotoGP is you see the athlete expressing himself, whether it be on the bike or whether it be in the social media or in the press conference. I mean, uh, if you talk of characters, you know, Valentino and Jorge are two great examples. Yeah. Poles apart, you know, Valentino 
incredibly engaging with any public that he's with um entertaining on the bike he was the one that brought fun into MotoGP back in the day and then there's jorge who's uh, the metronome who's incredibly good with his uh, performance on the bike also very active in the social media but never afraid to say exactly what he thinks <laughs> you know <laughs> but you enjoyed that a few times you know um and that's at the end of the day, that's good. It's a handful to deal with, but it's good because people should express themselves. I think it's important. We, we very we had Maverick on this show during the lockdown, yeah. and we very much enjoyed how he seemed. Again, another one hit by the Zen bug. It seems yeah. in twenty twenty. Yeah, seemed very chilled out and very open, yeah. and it was just a really nice conversation. Yeah, but I can imagine also for a rider, they have to answer such similar questions so many times yeah. and in a row for yeah. different outlets or to go to different places yeah. Yeah. so in that setting it was really nice to just talk about yeah a bit about you a bit about random stuff you yeah. know like how are you doing maverick and yeah. it's a really different for kind sure of they enjoy too. that much more if they can uh, talk about uh, things that are interesting in their life and what they do and their attitude is much more interesting than you know the 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 constant repeat to different broadcasters yeah. of uh, what about this or what about Rossi or what about this or, you know that is pretty laborious work for them honestly same so. for you as well I must uh, <laughs> I'm guessing yeah sometimes but I'm not as popular as they are so uh, they, they have much more engagement than tell you me. what yeah. actually a funny story actually my first time that I ever actually saw you in the flesh was uh, when you were at Goodwood Festival of Speed in ah, 2015 yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it was really funny because obviously Valentino was coming there that that, yeah. uh, that day he wasn't around at that point but I saw around the, the part of the tent where they had his M1 lined up yeah. um, I saw a crowd of people yeah. but it wasn't that big and I thought Valentina's not there already. Surely if he was there, it'd be way yeah. more people. No, yeah. no. The big crowd of people was around you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, I'm, I think, actually, you might have a bigger crowd around you than Stoner at this point. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, but it was interesting. But people do are interested in hearing about you. And well, that's part of, again, the benefit, I would say, of, uh, of the way the sport's been... Um um, publicized, marketized, yeah. and also social media also helps as well, because uh, it's a bit weird for me even as well. I mean, I I I'm always astonished actually that people even know who I am in <laughs> India, yeah, yeah, Indonesia, in Thailand. I mean, how, how do you know how do you know who I am? But sometimes you go, you know, we have a group of Indian guests coming. And they say, oh, Mr. John, it's really nice to see you. And I go, look. How do, they, how do they know what I do? You know? So it's kind of weird, but that's the that's TV factor for you. And then yeah, you're appearing sure. on TikToks as well. Oh, yeah, that's a little bit more embarrassing. Yeah, that's oh, a kind of that was amazing. That was a, yeah, it's kind of funny. Finally, I said uh, anyway. I I'm not a user of those kind of things too much. I take the more Danny Pedrosa side yeah. of social media, but yeah. I very much enjoy consuming other people's. Yeah. At times, overshares. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even great. know what TikTok was until afterwards. You know, <laughs> and you thought, we, why I mean, we kind of got this? stuck there in this thing, and I had to. Uh, I how many? <laughs> how many times that that video of you guys doing that dance? How many takes were there? Just one. Just one. Okay. Oh, just well, one. Right. It's yeah. true. True content as it's intended <laughs> yeah, to be. So I said, oh, just relax, <laughs> let it go. It's okay. It's quite Brilliant. funny. Brilliant. Um, right. Well, I found. I think we should. I think we should. Yeah. Before we steal the entirety of your Thursday. Yeah. Kenwood Quickfire. Okay. So basically, we are sponsored. The podcast is sponsored by Kenwood, who also supply the radios for the communications in the paddock yeah. for MotoGP guys. And we usually do word association or quickfire questions. We've, we've not chosen, done word association for months now. We've chosen <laughs> quickfire questions again because I don't know. There's always seem to be some good options for that. Okay. So yeah. 
Simple enough. So short answer. You want short, a short answer. answer. Most of them are either or. Okay. Don't be scared of elaborating. Okay. I'll give it my but, best shot. Okay. Shall I start? Yeah, go right. for it. Right. First things first. Coffee or tea? Mr. Man who's lived in Italia, in Italy for, for a while. <laughs> Yeah, it's always a dilemma. It's always a dilemma because I really, Still? really, yeah, it's really, I, I love both. So my wife will always uh, laugh as well because she asks me, you know, you want some coffee, you want tea? And I always look at my watch. <laughs> I look at my watch. I go, oh, it's... It's 11, 11, no, 11 is still tea time. I'll have a coffee later, so I love both. But uh, if you offer me only one, I'd probably go for an espresso. Well, okay. I, I would make that choice just for the fuel factor. Exactly. Sometimes it's just necessary. Uh, okay, so what about your favorite place in the world? Wow, that's a difficult one. Uh, favorite place in the world. Um, Well, I would say the place I've been to that I earlier on when I was always looking for a place I'd like to live and something that would really capture me is, you know, like being into having taken the decision to be international. I've always been looking for what could be home. And in terms of beauty and um, and feeling, honestly, the the area around South Africa, Cape Cape province, Stellenbosch area for mm. me is fantastic. The only thing against, because uh, would be the political climate. So, but in terms of beauty and feeling, that was really good. Um, As we already know, the internet thinks you'd fit right in immediately. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> but if I think about, let's say, in our world as we are now, if you think about just this little thing, a Mugello. Tuscany, Mugello, oh, a great yeah. place. I think that ruins the next question. Yeah, well, really? the next question is, what, what's that. the best track on the calendar? Yeah, no doubt, no doubt, no question. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, I like Mizano as well, but honestly, if we had a double header in uh, Mugello, oh. I would be in my element Same. and uh, I would love it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, All right. it's so beautiful. Shall I do the next one then? Yeah, go for it. Uh, what's more stressful, a fight between two riders, two of your own riders for the win, or a fight with a different rider from a different manufacturer and one of your own? Uh, two of our own, without any doubt, because uh, a fight with another one, anyway, we do it, we give it our best shot and we see what the consequences are. But a fight amongst your own two riders, anyway, has consequences. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> <So. laughs> <laughs> easier one for next then. Do you like getting up early or having a lion? Early. Not what do you do most, Not but which you prefer? Early, early. No, no, really? How early? Uh, it depends. I'm uh, kind of also well known for sending emails at five in the morning and four thirty and so forth. So take um, checks off. Never working for Yamaha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't do it by choice, but I can't lay in. So once I'm awake, that's it. I got to get up. Doesn't matter what time it is. Yeah. Um, what is your proudest achievement so far? Yeah, I would say the my proudest business achievement um, business achievement has to be the first championship in 2004 with Valentino because that was significant for me it was my first championship in MotoGP um, and it was the bringing back the victory to the company the brand the team and uh, it was a great story with a great um, great result and in terms of uh, personal life I would say uh, family life and uh, you know having kids together with my wife has been uh, also another you know that's bigger than anything wholesome answer mm. okay, I, I've got the really easy question again here 
Pineapple on pizza, yes or no? No way. <laughs> no, no way. I, I feel so alone. I am so pro pineapple on pizza. Really? Yeah, I'm out. yeah, but it has to be a proper, well-made Italian pizza. Right. Lots of tomato, not overly cheesed, but yeah. still, I put the trash pineapple on. You need, <laughs> you need to use my uh, watch, watch factor. Pineapple up till noon. Pizza in the evening. You well, know, I you did not know that. You can't mix the no. two. I'm gonna, I'm <laughs> gonna that use that. <laughs> um, okay, switching up again. What is the moment you learned the most from in MotoGP? Yeah. Hmm. I can't say there was a single moment. I would say it's just an accumulation of how to manage and resolve a number of problems mm. over a period of time because there's not there's not one single moment you know i can no i can't say that i think uh, everything you learn in life it's a process and uh, it's an accumulation you know what prepared you for this the 20 or everything. 30 years before you got there and that's mm. what it is nice Okay, that's cool. Uh, what about if you weren't here in MotoGP, nothing to do with bikes, what do you think you would be doing? <sighs> I feel like I, I did most of these. I feel like I went too philosophical for the quick fire round. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult to give you a quick fire round. I mean, uh, right now I'd rather be on a beach, frankly. Um, <laughs> Or in the mountains. I love mountains. Yeah. So I love to ski in the winter when I can and uh, even in the summer. So if you say, if you weren't here in this paddock right now, where would you rather be with this kind of summer thing? I'd rather be on the top of a mountain. Okay. Nice. What about in career? Was there anything else that tempted you earlier? Yeah, there have been some different things. Um, but, you know, I love what I'm doing. And so... I've never, you know, I've definitely sounded out some ideas and some opportunities along the way, but you'd have to be hard pushed to find a better job than the one I've got. So <laughs> it's okay. He's got blue That's blood. <laughs> Great quote. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so a couple more then. What is one place in the world that you would really like to visit that you haven't yet? Would really like to and haven't yet. Um, Yeah, it's a bit of a strange one, maybe, but I would say, and I, I don't know why I say it, but India. Yeah. Um, you know, you're not been to India yet. I've never been to India. Wow. Um, I love Indian food. Um, <laughs> don't all Brits. <laughs> I've heard that it's a very difficult place to visit as well. I've heard that you're confronted with many, many things, but I think it's it's something that's so completely different to anything I've ever done. Hmm. I think one time I must go to India, and there's no other place that I really think that. I mean, I, I've been very fortunate to travel extensively, not only with this job, but also I, you know, I've been to, uh, I've been to Paradakal, two times, three times, all through the Sahara Desert. I've been to Australia and I've been many, many, many places, been fortunate. So I don't really think there's another place that really like is a burning desire, but India is some fascination that one day I should go and take a look. Nice. Okay, that's cool. So finally then, what's the best piece of advice you can give anyone who's listening now? Yeah, hey, I would say the best piece of uh, advice I could give is anyway you should you should follow as much as you can because it's not easy for everybody all of the time. 
but follow what you enjoy to do because if you enjoy doing something and you commit enough time to it and you try to go deeper and learn from it you can probably master it and you can probably become successful and if you can become successful doing something you enjoy to do you're on the right way you know mm -hmm. and so I think it's very important to not be told by other people what you should be doing you should feel it inside what's the area that interests you and go down that path and if you go down that path maybe there'll be another diversion later but you know you've got to at least follow the path of where you think you should be going um, but work hard because nothing comes for nothing Brilliant. Well, what a great end to Amazing. the Kenwood Quickfire that was. Yeah. Coming, coming from a man who at the very who started from the very, very bottom that you possibly could. Yeah, I opened up the parts boxes <laughs> and to the very top. Thank you very much for You're joining us, Lynn. Really, yes, really thank appreciate you it. so much. Um, just uh, we'll do a quick outro, shall we? Well, keep in touch with us. Uh, use the hashtag MotoGP Podcast on Twitter. Let us know who you want to see on the podcast over the coming weeks because we'll still be producing them from the track, won't we? Skype's we still an option. Uh, Lynn, we'll have to get you back at some point because I feel like there's plenty more stories that you can still tell us. <laughs> call me call me back after we win the championship. I don't know when it will be. I hope it will be oh. sooner rather than later. <laughs> but then it will be okay, a pleasure to I come like back. That. Excellent. Perfect. Oh, brilliant. See and you. Then... Uh, we'll see you next week. Well, in a couple of weeks. Whenever we'll see you guys. <laughs> <laughs> but we will be back. Yeah, rest assured. And we normally give people things to look at on the, uh, we do, yeah. the old YouTube after episode. I would say this week, just look for some Yamaha highlights. You've got the first Rossi win in Welcome. There's some amazing races with Lorenzo as well. His mm. first win was a bit of a history maker for you guys mm. with him. Mm. Uh, the Silverstone 2013 duel against Marquez. Mm. That was also amazing. Mm. That dramatic day in Valencia where it was both of them going for the crown. Yeah. Have a look through some Yamaha highlights for sure because there's been some amazing performances and hopefully some more coming up as well after we just had another win for you guys before we record this. Yeah. <laughs> Thank Thanks very much. much. Thank you very much, everybody.